if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed, it is. And a good morning to you. Seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock, and we're rolling. It is a Tuesday, the 23rd morning of the second month of the year of our Lord, 2021. We are loaded for bear today. Uh, we're going to try to stuff 10 pounds of facts and information into a five pound sack today. Uh, really, uh, I've got two, three, four times as much to, uh, information to cover with you than I actually have allotted time on the radio. So we're going to dive right into it. Coming up at 9.35, we're going to talk to Jerry Boyer. He's an economist. And uh, he's got some thoughts on what this $2 trillion spending boondoggle is going to do to the United States and whether or not it is even remotely related to COVID-19 relief. Jerry Boyer, uh, columnist for townhall.com, and again, a financial economist, will be joining us at 9.35 to give you all the details. Then at 10.10, what did I tell you this was? I told you it was Tuesday, didn't I? It means this is Kersenow Day. Peter Kersenow will join us. It's kind of funny. Uh, Peter uh, and I always talk a little bit before each show. Sometimes it's the night before, sometimes it's the morning of when he comes on the program and we discuss topics for this morning's conversation. And uh, I said, Pete, how long can you stay? Same story. We got we got way too much stuff to pack into way too small of a time period. I said, you want to talk about Merrick Garland's Q&A yesterday, which was terrifying and frightening if this man becomes, and he will, become the uh, Attorney General of the United States, leading the Department of what is going to be injustice? How about Neera Tandon, the Office of Management and Budget nominee uh, from uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, to run that very important department? She is now being held to account for her thousands of despicable, repugnant things that she said about Republicans and even some non-Republicans on Twitter. She went to, as soon as she was nominated, she knew that she was going to be in serious trouble because the people who would be considering her nomination and need to vote for her to be approved or to be confirmed um, were her targets. So she deleted over 1,100 tweets as if somehow they would not be found again. Uh, this is the Internet, and the Internet, as you know by now, lasts forever. So we can talk about Neera Tandon and whether or not Republicans should give in. By the way, Romney and Collins, two Republicans who have said they will not vote to confirm her. Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, said he will not vote to confirm her. So she's in trouble. And we're going to talk about that and also what Hugh Hewitt was just talking about with respect to that. We'll hit that uh, coming up with uh, Peter Kirsten now as well. I asked Pete if he wanted to talk about Woka Cola. 
If you didn't hear the Coca-Cola story on yesterday's show or online somewhere, well, you really need to open your eyes because it's out there and it's big. And uh, it is just the continuing of the division of this country along racial lines uh, by corporate America. Supreme Court decisions, the forcing of the Equality Act upon the American people, which is extraordinarily inequality. It is extraordinary inequality, rather, for millions and millions and millions of Americans, all to placate a group of people who, com- who comprise less than 1%, probably less than a third of a percent of the American population. Is that equal for everybody? Supreme Court decisions yesterday, reparations hearings, COVID spending bill, Joe Biden, who has... Did you know that Joe Biden referred to veterans of the United States military and ex-police officers as a major component of white supremacist groups? Uh, Yeah. wants to talk about all of those things. We're going to have to find a way to condense it. Like I said, he'll be with us at 1010 this morning. I do want to start with the uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, from yesterday because this is... This is extraordinarily disappointing. Um, Two of the three Trump appointees to the court, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, just, in my view, completely neglected their responsibilities to uh, and their oath to support and defend and uphold the Constitution. They decided not to hear the Pennsylvania election dispute cases. They decided to not hear virtually every one of the election dispute cases. They decided, no, let's just put this the whole thing in the rearview mirror. The problem with that is, of course, and if you're smart, you realize this, the problem with that is that, you know, hearing those cases now and finding fraud in Pennsylvania and in other places isn't going to make us go back and turn back the clock and undo the election and the in the inauguration and put Trump back in power. That ship has sailed. It is not possible anymore. But what the Supreme Court needed to do here was find the proof of the fraud. If, if there was some, hear the cases. Let the evidence be presented. Remember, they didn't find against the merits of the case. They refused to hear the merits of the case. And that is a major, major difference. What they owed the American people is to listen to the allegations, listen to the evidence presented, find out what's real and what isn't real, if for no other reason than to protect future elections, so that the same thing isn't allowed to happen in 2022 in the midterms, and certainly, God forbid, in 2024 in the next presidential election cycle. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about protecting and preserving election integrity going forward. This isn't an attempt to undo the past election now. Even though most of us would like to see that happen, that can happen, that wouldn't happen. So let's be real about this. And Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh were not on the side of the American people in this. Neither was John Roberts, but we've come to expect that. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a statement dissenting from the denial of the case filed by the Trump administration and the Pennsylvania Republican Party. Justice Sam Alito wrote a separate statement in which he agreed with Justice Thomas, but he wanted to write his own. And Justice Gorsuch joined in Justice Alito's statement dissenting from the denial of the review. 
But it was 6-3. to three. And remember when the left was, like, terrorizing the Supreme Court? Remember when they stormed the Supreme Court in a, in a, in a scene not too terribly dissimilar from the storming of the Capitol on January 6th? Remember this? When the left stormed the Supreme Court building while the Kavanaugh hearings were going on and pounded on the doors, shut it down, shut it down. They beat that building, thank goodness they didn't breach it and smash windows to get in, but they did everything they could to storm that building and stop the confirmation hearing from taking place. And it's important that you remember and recognize the wording that I just used. They tried to stop the hearing that was taking place. I'll tell you why that's important in a moment. But they were so livid that the appointment of Kavanaugh was going to lead to a 5-4 conservative majority and that all of their precious you know, pet projects and, and legislation that they have decided on in the past, such as Roe versus Wade, decided by the court to be constitutional, uh, you know, as far as providing abortions, all, you, you, we don't have to go through the whole list here. We've, we've been through it time and time again. Then, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died just a few months before the election, and then Amy Coney Barrett was appointed, oh, the tears that they cried, oh, the rage that they, they filled the air with. Now it's going to be a six to three conservative majority. Our nation is over, the far left said. They were so freaked out about the six three conservative majority. But as I said to you at the time, it was never a six three majority. At best, it might be a five four majority because Justice John Roberts, the Chief Justice appointed by George W. Bush, was a leftist. If not an out-and-out leftist, at least a liberal. And his decision-making on countless numbers of extraordinarily impactful uh, uh, decisions by that court, votes by that court, have, 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 been, have been disastrous. He's, he's been the exact opposite of what he was supposed to be. He sides with the left more than he sides with the right. Which is to say, then, that he sides with the side of the court that is not Defending the Constitution as written. I always, I always feel obligated to point this out when we talk about Supreme Court issues. It's not a conservative wing of the court and a liberal wing of the court, the way it's often painted and, and presented, right? It's, it's rather, it's originalists, textualists, those who actually look at the Constitution and believe it. Their job is to look at laws that are presented and look at cases and see how they stack up to the actual Constitution, not what they think the Constitution should be. They don't try to change the Constitution. They don't try to interpret it as being, yeah, but modern day, this is what the Constitution should really say. They don't legislate because they're not legislators. They are justices. They are in the judiciary. They do not create an established law. That's what the left wing, if you want to call it that, of the court does. They establish laws when they're not supposed to. They interpret constitutional intent, which they're not supposed to. Wing biased. They're not even, quote, conservative side. They're just originalists. So at the best, it was a 5-4 majority for the originalists over the interpretive legislators in robes, right? When, when uh, uh, Kavanaugh was appointed. 
And then when Amy Coney Barrett came along, now that was a conservative. That was a conservative, originalist, textualist. Somebody that was going to be rock solid on the language of the Constitution, and that freaked the left out big time. Now it's six to three. But as I said, Roberts was never going to be on the conservative side or the originalist side. He could never be counted upon. And sure enough, he wasn't in this case. But the shocker was Amy Coney Barrett. That's the shock here. You knew that the the Democrat-appointed justices, you knew that um, Breyer and Kagan and Sotomayor were going to be all against uh, hearing these cases. But you figured you would at least get two of the other, uh, you know, the Republican appointees to go along. And they couldn't. I mean, well, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about a Supreme Court that was supposed to be the true check on liberal Democrat overreach. Because they control the executive branch, Biden and Harris, and they control the Congress, the court, which is a majority of Republican appointees, was supposed to be the true check and balance in our system of checks and balances government. And they're not. And again, it's not because of politics. I'm not suggesting they should be right-wing. I'm suggesting they should do what they swore their oath to do, and that is look at the text of the Constitution and apply it to the cases before them. And if they do so, I think things will work out just fine. But instead, they don't. That election law case in, in Pennsylvania with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, um, that was extraordinarily important to be heard, and they would not hear it. These justices, including two of the three Trump appointees, are an extraordinary disappointment. Where it goes from here, I don't know. And by the way, the same Supreme Court also voted to allow the Attorney General in New York to, uh, or not Attorney General, District Attorney in New York, Cyrus Vance, to get Donald Trump's private tax returns. They're his, nobody else's. I don't care what tradition shows about candidates for president releasing their tax returns. It is not obligated. It is not a law. It is in no way public knowledge, supposed to be public knowledge. And yet there it is. The Supreme Court yesterday was a very, very big disappointment. And where that goes from here, well, that's something we're going to talk to Kirsten now about at 1010. All right, uh, I've laid it out. That's the open. Let's uh, let's get some of your phone calls going. I've got guests at 935 and then with Kirsten out at 1010. So if you want to get in, get in early. A lot of topics, 216-901-0945, 888-281-1110. Either one gets you here on the Authority AM 1420, The Answer. Asking about it, uh, people who listen to the Hugh Hewitt show before they listen to me, which I always advise that you do. I always have Hugh on in the background or in the foreground, along with uh, cable news in the morning. Uh, watch uh, Newsmax and OAN and Fox News, uh, flipping back and forth between those, as well as turning up Hugh and seeing what Hugh's talking about. And I cannot uh, advise strongly enough in favor of that. You really need to. Hugh is brilliant. But a lot of people are critical, and I'm one of them. And I said that to Hugh this morning. I messaged him. Uh, of Hugh's strong defense of, or at least an advocation for, 
allowing the Senate to vote to confirm Neera Tandy for the uh, Tandon for the um, office management and budget position. It's an extraordinarily important position, and it's a very, very big decision for a president to make in terms of an crass demeanor and hateful comments for years, uh, primarily aimed at conservatives, make her almost untenable. If he wants to build what he called, Biden does, you know, a unified America and unite everybody together, she's extraordinarily divisive, right? And she's not going to get confirmed. And Hugh has been on the air advocating that people like Senator, Senator Cruz, who we talked to this morning, go ahead and set aside all of those mean tweets and go ahead and confirm her anyway, just as kind of a show of good faith to the Democrats, so that they will also be nice to conservatives who have said mean tweets if they ever come up for nominations for this or that or the other. And I just could not understand that I'm listening and I'm just scratching my head and I'm just like, yeah, biting my lip. I've got my fingernails being driven into my palms as I clench my fists. And I'm like, what are you doing here? What are you doing? I understand his point. And I asked him directly and he was kind enough to respond. And he said his concern is all of those good young conservatives who are working and have grown up in the social media era, whose careers have been launched in the time of the social media era, who probably have a whole bunch of mean tweets on the record themselves. And he said, if we say general amnesty for all past mean tweets, let's start fresh going forward, then maybe they'll get a fair shake from the liberals. And I told you what I'm telling you on the radio now. I understand that point of view. I can understand that. However... That only works if you trust the left. If you trust the left to go quid pro quo and say, okay, because you guys were nice and ignored Neera Tandy's 1,100 deleted mean tweets and allowed her to be confirmed, we will look the other way on the mean tweets of conservative nominee X, Y, or Z, and, and, and all of them going forward and, and ignore anything that they have said that we deem to be disagreeable, offensive, or hateful. If you trust the left, it's a good strategy. But for goodness sakes, how can anybody trust the left? The left built cancel culture. It's their creation. The left created PC, political correctness, And they decided that anybody that is politically incorrect in their speech, particularly conservatives, must go. They can't work. They can't be in the public eye. They can't have jobs. They they, they get doxxed. They get harassed. If you're non-PC, particularly as a conservative, they created the cancel culture. This is their invention. I believe that if the, if the, the, the conservatives in the Senate say, you know what? We're going to follow that advice. We're going to vote to confirm Neera Tandon. We're going to let bygones be bygones, let her past tweets be in the past, and and move forward and expect that the left will do the same thing. I think that is a recipe for absolute disaster. You can never trust the left. They will never, ever live up to their quid pro quo agreement with you. You allow Neera Tandon or any other leftist to get away with this kind of stuff and expect, well, then the next time they'll be nice to our side, you do that at at our own peril, to our own great detriment. I just disagree. I love Hugh Hewitt. I do. I love Hugh, and I respect his brilliance. He's one of the smartest men I've ever met. 
not not joking, even a little bit, his knowledge of constitutional law and American history and American military and American politics is is almost unparalleled. I love that guy, and I love listening to him, but I fundamentally disagree with him. I told him so privately, so this is not some sort of an on-air sandbag. I told him so privately. He explained himself to me, and I said I respect it, and I get it if you can trust the left. But, my friends, we cannot trust the left. Uh, we'll get news now, and we'll come back with uh, Jerry Boyer. He's going to talk to us about this untrustworthy $2 trillion spending bill filled with Democrat dreams. That's coming up on 1420 The Answer. Progressive Democrats, please be aware you have now entered the place where political correctness goes to die. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. All right, 937, we continue on AM 1420. The answer. And uh, I want you to hear a little bit from the uh, from the President of the United States, who says we have to spend $2 trillion, $2 trillion to fight COVID-19. The COVID relief bill must be spent, and every dollar will be spent wisely. We will ensure every dollar is spent well. These changes will bring much needed long overdue to help to small businesses who really need help staying open, maintaining jobs and making ends meet. And this is a starting point. This is a starting point. Three hundred million dollars for uh, the the arts and humanities. Uh, a hundred ten million dollars. I will never get off of this for the preservation of Native American languages, which I will have. I, I will apologize profusely if somebody can ever show me where that check is being written and how those dollars are being spent to preserve Native American languages and what that has to do with COVID-19. Let's dive into this with somebody who knows a lot more about it than I do. Jerry Boyer joins us now. He's a financial economist, a public speaker at business conferences, and he is one of the uh, best uh, uh, best regarded uh, pundits on all of these matters in political circles. Joining us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Jerry, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Bob. Great to be with you. All right, I've been. I try, I spent most of two hours yesterday on the airwaves here, reading through all of the of different items in this one point nine trillion dollar spending bill. I think less than ten percent of the dollars actually go to something having to do with COVID relief, either for businesses or for employees or for patients or for hospitals or for schools or anything else that'll actually deal with COVID nineteen. The rest of it is democratic democratic dreams come true, funding poorly operating states and cities that have been led by Democrat uh, leadership for years, if not decades in the past, bailing them out of their own problems. Jerry, how on earth do Democrats justify this bill when so many Americans are really truly in need of actual COVID relief? Because they think they're saving the world. Um, That's how they justify it. So, you know, having a kind of a distant relationship with the truth is a small price to pay ethically, if you think the earth is going to burn up um, and that, you know, America is right on the verge of tilting into Nazism uh, unless we get the right kind of diversity re-education. So they believe that, you know, bills like this are the difference between heaven on earth and hell on earth. So they'll lie, um, especially if you're a moral relativist. It's a lot easier to lie. Um, but, of course, it is a lie. This isn't a COVID bill. This is a COVID bill held hostage by a gigantic honeypot of progressive dreams. Um, and the idea is that if Republicans vote no, we're voting no on COVID vaccines. 
uh, when we're really would be voting no on, you know, preserving ancient Cherokee or um, the Green New Deal or whatever pieces of it they think they can get through. So it's a it's a play for political power. It's a it's a play for it's a active political manipulation. Um, and by the way, the markets see what's going on. Bond yields are going up. Why? Because if I'm going to lend you money and I'm afraid that when you pay me back, the dollars will be worth a lot less. I need a higher interest from you uh, to compensate me for the risk of the loss of purchasing power. So that's why bond yields go up when inflation fears go up, because it's another risk in the, that the markets have to account for. So the markets are always telling the truth, even when the politicians are lying. And the markets, through $55,000 Bitcoin and you know, recent spikes in gold and a weak dollar and rising interest rates, are all screaming, we can't afford this. And they're right. Uh, first, I want to thank you for uh, this new addition to my vernacular, having a distant relationship with the truth. That is, uh, that's the best way to describe a lie that I've heard in a long time. So I'm going to add that one. Um, Jerry, talk to me about some of the impacts on the economy. Uh, and if you want to uh, tie it to the markets or not, we all know there's the actual, you know, Main Street economy as well as, uh, as well as the markets. But of some of the things in the bill that have nothing to do with COVID relief, for example, the push over the span of four years to increase the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. What will that do to the economy, both on the street, Main Street, and market-wise? And then secondly, this, you know, I can't do, he said, $50,000 for every student loan borrower, but I can do 10. I can, with an order, I can do a $10,000 student loan debt forgiveness for everybody. What does that do, especially to the banks? Well, uh, you, the, the federal government owns a lot of that. So in many ways, it's the taxpayers who end up paying. Um, and listen, I would be kind of open to a debt forgiveness plan where the actual beneficiaries of all that college money were the ones who were paying. In other words, usually if I buy something from someone and the product isn't very good um, and I return it, um, whoever sold it to me takes the hit. Well, that's the universities. So if we want to have a conversation about the universities and their, and their huge endowments and the extremely high living standards for, you know, for hours worked of uh, tenured faculty, and they take a haircut – because they kind of did oversell the value of a college education relative to the price. Well, that's a conversation worth having. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about sticking it to the lenders. And really, since the taxpayer is the main lender of student loans, because Obama basically nationalized that program, we're talking about sticking it to the taxpayer. Um, so what it does is it creates something called moral hazard, which is people go out and spend money with the idea that it'll probably be forgiven. As for the, as for the $15 an hour minimum wage, it's kind of something like that. It's, it's kind of weird because the economic impact is not super big in terms of the overall macro economy because it affects poor people and poor people don't have as much pull in the economy. So it's socially really tragic that poor people will never get starter jobs. So the underclass is going to get a little bigger. But in terms of macroeconomic out, you know, in terms of like yeah. the moving the macroeconomy, it doesn't. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It matters all the more because it's hurting the most vulnerable. It's hurting the people whose, whose individual economies are so small that they don't matter much in the big picture. But they're human beings. They matter in the eyes of God. I mean, they have dignity. They ought to be able to have starter jobs. And a $15 an hour uh, minimum wage is a starter job if your daddy's rich and you live in L.A., New York, um, Boston. Every place else, if your daddy isn't rich and well-connected, 
um, and you live in most of the rest of the country, your starter wage is going to be something more like seven or eight dollars an hour, which would become illegal. And so you never get started in the in the labor market. I talk from time to time. We're talking to Jerry Boyer. I talk from time to time to business owners, small business owners who operate on razor thin profit margins, oftentimes, you know, store owners, restaurant owners, these kinds of things, uh, and ask them what this would do to them and to, you know, to their overhead. If they have to jack up that uh, minimum wage, their overhead goes up. They either going to have to, they say, you know, lay people off or cut everybody's hours way back or, uh, or a combination of then jacking up their own prices, making them perhaps, uh, too expensive for the average consumer to afford. So, then their business goes down. In other words, they say it's yeah. the worst case scenario. Do you agree with that? that yeah, that's, that's the most likely. If we actually did this, I think the most likely scenario is a lot of small businesses would shut down and they would be replaced by the giant, uh, the big boxes and the, and the e-commerce companies, which have the capital base to uh, afford automation. So nobody can afford to pay someone more than they produce, right? But a, a small, you know, little mom and pop shop, and I grew up in one. You know, Boyer Bar and Grill is where I grew up as a little kid. Um, so I understand this economy. They couldn't automate. You know, my 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 Grammy is the one who <laughs> ran the grill, um, and my pop up he poured the drinks. But gigantic companies they automate easily. So if if I really thought there was going to be a fifteen dollar hour. Uh, $15 an hour minimum wage, if I was sure of that, first thing I would do is go out and buy publicly traded companies that, that create kiosks and other robotic replacements, automation replacement for low-skilled labor, because that's the main beneficiary. Do you think that it would also promote um, an even higher dropout rate, particularly in impoverished school districts, particularly among minorities, if they figure, why do I need to graduate high school? I can make 15 bucks an hour right now. Uh, they'll give me a job pushing a broom or dunking a fryer or whatever the case might be. For 15 bucks an hour, I can live off of that. Uh, it may disincentivize academic achievement. I think for some, but I think most of them won't get that job pushing a broom. I think what we, what you'll have is companies will, you know, there'll be a kind of a minority quota. So there's going to let's so let's say you get fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. When we raised the minimum wage before under Obama, you could basically track black unemployment to the rise in minimum wage. It fit almost perfectly. So what's going to happen is a lot of black Young people, teenagers especially, won't get jobs. Now, there'll be political pressure on companies, so there'll, there'll be some attempt to hire minorities to kind of put a face on it, you know, not to look like they're discriminatory, but not enough to really change the dynamics of black unemployment. The typical African-American teenager doesn't have the same social network as a white teenager and a middle class um, teenager in general or, or working class doesn't have the same social network as a wealthy family. Mm -hmm. So if you're from a wealthy, well-educated family, your dad, your mom, they can get you that $15 an hour minimum wage because they've got deposits in the favor bank and they work for companies where maybe starter jobs really are like that. But for everybody else, basically we're destroying the bottom two rungs of the ladder. And that means for a certain number of people, and I'm talking about in the hundreds of thousands and millions, they never, ever enter the labor market. You can't go into a house that there's no door. The door to employment is almost always minimum wage work. If you, if you nail that shut, by creating a living wage to replace the minimum wage, a family-sustaining wage for people who don't have to sustain a family. You know, for like beer money, working summers, that you don't need a family-sustaining wage to do something like that. But if we, if we tell companies you can only pay somebody if you're paying a family-sustaining wage, then what we're doing is we're consigning really hundreds of thousands of people to never, ever 
entering the labor market. And who knows what the social cost of that is. That is exactly what I'm talking about. Excellently articulated. Thank you. Jerry Boyer is our guest. i got two more quick questions on this uh, $2 trillion bill. Uh, One of them is, I mentioned it just in passing in the intro, uh, $135 million to the National Endowment for the Arts, another $135 million to the National Endowment of the Humanities, and $200 million to the Institute of Museum and Library Services. So quick math, that's $470 million for things that have zero to do with um, with COVID-19 or COVID-19 relief. Now, when I brought that up in the in the beginning, you kind of said, well, because they're trying to save the world. That's at least how they're painting it. They want to include this and this. The green- I mean, this has nothing to do with health. It has nothing to do with Green New Deal. It has nothing to do with anything remotely related to, quote-unquote, you know, doing something to save the world. This is just straight-up charity to things that have nothing to do um, with, with COVID-19, with economic relief, or anything else that one might consider to be philanthropic in, in nature. What is your read on that? Well, my read is that they're not trying to save the world from COVID. They're trying to save the world from conservatives and global warming. And, no, um, I know. And, I, I, I get yeah. that. I, I just yeah. don't understand where you were finding the opportunity. Even that. Uh, yeah, I mean, how many people read the bill? Um, I mean, you you did it. Your listeners heard you read sections from it, mm-hmm. but um, you know, most people are pretty low information voters. Um, and the Democrats can basically affix the label. You voted against the COVID vaccine to Republicans who vote no, who are really voting no on the other 90 percent of it. By the way, that's why I don't like these omnibus bills. I mean, really, Me we too. ought to have seriously think about an amendment to the Constitution. You have it in state. Like if you have a state um, uh, 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 with a referendum, it's got to be one topic, right? We should have the same with bills. One topic. Stand Here's COVID, alone. up or down, and everyone would vote for the COVID uh, uh, vaccine bill. And we can leave the museums to fend for themselves. And the $1,400, you know, uh, uh, stimulus payment, the next 1400 I mean, people, because you're right, they do. They lump all these things together, and if you don't vote for all of these pet projects, these pork projects, you voted against $1,400 for needy Americans. That's exactly what they do. Last thing, on education. This, this provides $130 million to, quote-unquote, education for COVID relief. Meaning, at least the way it's presented is, okay, this is going to be used to buy the, you know, the plexiglass barriers and schools and the PPE and all the different things that everybody needs to reopen the schools safely. But, Jen Psaki admitted yesterday, this isn't for any of that. As a matter of fact, uh, almost none of this will be spent immediately. In a quote-unquote emergency relief bill, it's not enough of an emergency. It won't be spent until 2022, and she admitted yesterday it's going to be spent on teachers. To me, this is quid pro quo. Joe Biden told the teachers' unions, endorse me and elect me, and I'll give it to you on the back end. They voted for him. They endorsed him. The uh, the NEA, the AFT, all of them endorsed him, and now here is their payback. Thoughts? To the victor go the spoils. Andrew Jackson said it. That's that's the system. I hate that. But um, when when your guy you you when when groups support presidential candidates, in many cases they're not really supporting uh, a set of ideas. They're buying futures. You know, it's a kind of an investment. Um, and I think the teachers unions knew what they were getting when they put, went all in for uh, for Joe Biden, and he's doing his best to repay that. Um, so that's uh, the elections have consequences. Again, that's a very corrupt way to do things, and it should be a separate bill. And of course, if it was sep- if it were a separate bill, it would go down in flames. Jerry Boyer is an economist, and he's also the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily, which you can find online at affluentinvestor.com. Jerry, great analysis. Thank you for breaking all of this down for us. We appreciate. Thank it. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Have a great day, sir. 
9.51. Let's take our time out. Let's come back and get some phone calls before the top of the hour and Peter Kirsten out time. 216-901-0945. Telling you right now, dial now if you want to get in before the top of the hour on AM 1420 The Answer.